Welcome to PRN's Progressive Radio News Hour. I'm Steve Lindman. My guest today is Rodney Shakespeare. Rodney, I know you have what I love to do every time you come on, a list of topics to discuss, important ones, so we always are able to cover a lot of ground on many topics. And on most programs, we go into detail on a few, but it's hard to cover as many as we manage to cover when you come on. But can I mention one before you get into your list? I imagine you you brought one uh, to discuss on the program. Program. I wrote an article this morning. I finished it shortly before airtime. One that surprised me about Haaretz, the left of center Israeli broadsheet, publishing an editorial talking about the urgency of getting rid of Netanyahu, Rodney, if you can imagine that. Israeli media march in lockstep with Israeli governance nearly all the time. Even Haaretz, that occasionally is critical of Netanyahu, but they said. Uh, they want him removed with all urgency, is the way they put it. The only thing wrong with their editorial is they talked about a lot of important things, but they left out the most important things, the lawlessness of the government, the waging of naked aggression, the brutalization of Palestinians, the murdering of them in cold blood, uh, the prisons, the gulag prisons, the torture that goes on inside. None of these things were given as reasons for wanting to remove Netanyahu and the fact that all Israeli administrations basically operate the same way, some worse than others, but all of them going back to Ben-Gurion, who thought it was okay to slaughter Palestinians en masse and just get rid of them all. If Ben-Gurion felt that way, then what do you expect from Netanyahu or Sharon or all of them? So I took issue. I, 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 I basically complimented R.S. for what it did, but I took great issue with what they didn't do. Yes, indeed, Steve. And um, I can't claim to be completely knowledgeable upon the twists and turns of uh, Israeli politics. But one factor in the situation will undoubtedly be the succession of um, non-binding votes, but certainly straws in the wind, by which I think it was just yesterday, for example, uh, France, the French Parliament, decided that there was a case for recognizing um, Palestine, and I believe Denmark will be the next one. And of course, this is a gathering uh, snowball, and even some point, something has to impinge upon the consciousness of the um, Israeli political establishment that they're going to have to do something. Now, Steve, um, I don't think we ought to call this program um, a, a, a Christmas special. Um, that would be saying that there's going to be a lot of goodies in it. Um, on the other hand, oh, it's not just a program. So we call it a, a Christmas program. And um, I just want to start by saying um, a point referring to uh, the MH17 Ukraine, uh, the, uh, the plane which was shot down, and say that it is quite clear that Malaysia has been excluded uh, from the uh, considerations as to what shot down that plane. In other words, the one country which could be expected to fight for the truth, 
has been excluded and a stitch-up is coming because there's no way um, that the, the groupings, the two groupings who are allegedly investigating this are going to actually uh, produce uh, the, the uh, truth. Malaysia is in my mind for a, um, a number of uh, reasons. Um, in 1998, uh, there was a run on the Malaysian uh, ringgit. And as a result of that, uh, and all uh, the ringgit was being sold down and all the debts in foreign currencies, and um, the government was being uh, threatened. And an extraordinary thing happened. Um, Prime Minister Mahathir uh, sent one of his staff to find um, a man who he had uh, found or heard speak 10 years before. That man was Tansri Noor Mohammed Yaqob. And cutting long story short, Mahathir recognized that only Yaqob could, in fact, provide the solution to the Malaysian crisis, which was to put on capital uh, controls. I spare you the long story because I did actually hear it from uh, Yaqob himself, a remarkable man. And uh, the essence of the thing was to defy the IMF. And that is very much in my mind, Malaysia, in connection with Russia, because the Russian ruble is uh, down, uh, allegedly because it's a political move to pull down the oil prices, but it's nothing of the sort. It's the markets uh, responding to political pressure to sell down uh, the ruble. And I think we may well be seeing uh, capital uh, controls uh, coming in respect of Russia, which will be a good thing, Steve, because Russia has made the mistake of opening itself to foreign capital, opening itself to the predations and the manipulations by the Western financial system. Great mistake. May it put on capital controls and uh, uh, in that way protect itself against uh, an un unnecessary outflow of its resources. Um, in the case of Malaysia, three years later in 2001, Prime Minister Mahathir extracted a groveling apology from the International Monetary Forum to the effect that uh, Mahathir and his, um, his advisor, Tantri Noor Mohammed Yaqob, were indeed right, and that capital controls can be a very sensible thing when political maneuvering, uh, responding to political pressure, uh, market maneuvering, responding to political pressure, uh, tends to sell down an economy which does not uh, deserve uh, to be uh, sold down. Now, Steve, um, there are so many issues coming from out of this Russian situation at the moment. And I want to take a theme here, uh, which is that I believe that although Russia made the mistake of wanting to get on well with the West all the time and eventually to become a form or an outpost of Western financial capitalism rather than developing itself, I think now that the, um, the stone has been thrown in the water, the, um, the situation has changed, and the Russians realize uh, that they are the object of um, uh, American and Western aggression, political aggression, financial aggression, and indeed military aggression. And one of the outcomes of that is a most remarkable development uh, 
which is in fact the cancellation of Southstream. Now, Southstream uh, was, and the word is was, a project to pump Russian gas. And by gas, this is the, the, the gas in the air, you know, it's not petrol. Uh, Russian gas into Europe and bypassing uh, Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, of course, has been the, um, the weak spot in the present uh, supply of gas because when Ukraine doesn't pay what it's due to Russia, then the gas going through to Ukraine tends to get siphoned off uh, to Ukraine itself and Europe loses. So a stable supply was needed. But since Europe responding to pressure from the USA has put sanctions on Russia, the Russians have just suddenly turned around and say, you must muck us around and we will muck you around. And what they've done is the, um, they've, they've cancelled the South Stream and in fact are diverting the existing um, uh, pipes and things as they're being built to Turkey with possible other outlets. And the reaction of the West has been a wonder to behold because you see, they're saying, well, no, this isn't really happening. Russia couldn't possibly do this. Uh, Russia would, in fact, agree uh, to sell its gas to us uh, because this is what we want. This is an absolutely mind-boggling inability. It's called cognitive dissonance. I never used to understand. It just means not grasping reality. The Russians have cancelled the South Stream and the the European Union saying, oh, no, they won't. Uh, they will be letting it through. They won't. They have uh, cancelled it. And the implications are huge because Europe is under pressure for gas, particularly at this moment when it's winter and everyone is aware of this. Um, the West is pushing, trying to push now Ukraine into, uh, into NATO. And the Russians have said, no, this isn't going to happen. We are now going to go our own way. And as we go our own way, it's going to lead us to cooperate with others. This is the movement towards the BRICS, uh, Steve. Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And they're going to carry on with their integration, and they will be cancelling uh, great projects. Um, projects which are going on all the time and which don't get publicity in the West. I mean, a recent example is, um, shall we say, Iran and um, Tajikistan and Kazakhstan. I think those are the three. A great new railway uh, gets uh, established, uh, opening up economic development in that area. Not a, a whisper uh, gets onto the news in the West. Uh, Don DeBar, who is a colleague of yours in um, radio, he's, he's based in New York. He points out um, that the inevitable result is, um, is that the, is the move to the East and the, all these agreements are going to end up with the uh, collapse eventually of the American uh, dollar. So let me just stop for the moment there with the cancellation of the South Stream project and uh, see whether you've got any reaction on that because there's so much more uh, to talk about. But I thought that the, the Russian ruble down, um, by the way, uh, the Russian ruble down, that's being political pressure. But behind this, Steve, is, of course, the great deflation. Uh, when you have um, 
debt which has built up completely. When you have policies which take no account of technological shifting and change, and therefore you have to find new ways of giving income to people or ensuring they're productive, when you have this, then you are, and you've got an increase in rich poor division, you've got um, the consumer debt which didn't exist in 1929, so the situation today is now worse than what it was in 2007, and certainly much worse than what it was in 1929. You're looking at another great downward or whoosh, or another great downward lurch, and behind that is uh, increased debt, complete insecurity, and people are pulling in their horns. And this is being reflected in uh, lowered corn prices, soya, or wheat, and iron ore. I believe that copper has been sort of going up and down. But the, the great signs are this is the, uh, a commodity pullback. And when commodity pulls back on this sort of scale, you are the, indeed, Steve, uh, looking at a situation where which is uh, quivering. And the next thing will be a sharp uh, downward uh, lurch. So let's just leave that for the moment with your comments on South Stream cancellation, uh, Russia uh, deflation, and are we on the verge of another downward uh, lurch in the global financial system? Well, on the latter point first, uh, Rodney, I think at some point that downward lurch is coming. There have been several times when I thought maybe it had arrived, but I was wrong. It hadn't arrived yet. And I think the reason isn't because of the state of the economy, but because of manipulation of markets by the Federal Reserve and the other major central banks, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, the ECB. Uh, they manipulate these things. Wall Street, the big European bankers, uh, maybe some of the other Western bankers involved in manipulating things to keep this 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 maybe this probably greatest of all Ponzi schemes going but all Ponzi schemes have a bad ending and this one will too uh, the late Bob Chapman used to be on my program all the time a former Wall Street insider Bob he died uh, Rodney he died he died a few years ago I miss him terribly he had wonderful information he'd come on once a month and just update listeners on the things that he knew important stuff and I remember him predicting that he saw this thing coming down the whole house of cards collapsing. He couldn't predict when, but but he said sometime between 2012 and 2017. And the most important thing that he said, I believe, was that the longer this thing goes on, the worse the crash will be when it finally comes. Where well, here we are heading into 2015, and if we go much longer on this, it'll be a crash that may look make 2008 look like nothing by comparison. As far as what Russia is doing. Rodney. Uh, I want to see Russia flex its muscles more. It certainly has muscles to flex. I don't believe in violence. I don't want a violent confrontation between East and West. But America keeps shoving world countries around, including Russia, blaming Russia for its own crimes. And I want to see Russia begin pushing back. When America, when Russia refers to our American partners, well, Russia knows that it has no partners in America. It has adversaries in America. And I would like to see a little more assertive language. The South Stream project may be one thing it's doing that could have a positive effect. There are other things it could be doing. And once in a while, it does say things. Vladimir Putin uh, makes some very candid statements. Foreign Minister Lavrov makes some very candid statements. They know what they're up against. They know the crimes that America is committing. They know the lies being told about their own country. The European countries bullied to go along. The scoundrels 
mongrel media, as I like to call them, going along because that's what they do. They march in lockstep with lawless U.S. policy. But if Russia pushes back enough, we we can see America maybe back off a little bit, Rodney, because bullies like to go after targets they can easily take on and shove around. And Russia is not one of those countries. You start shoving Russia around and Russia starts shoving back, we'll see how America may likely pull back. Unless it wants a nuclear war, and that I don't know, but the possibility is there. That would be the horror of horrors. Yes, indeed. Uh, bullies always take a, a bully because they know they can get away with it. They don't bully when they are up against someone who is going to firmly resist. Now, Steve, can I just turn to um, shocking stuff in the USA? Yes. Uh, that man, Eric Gaynor, who was selling a few um, cigarettes uh, for perhaps pennies of profit for himself, if he was selling any cigarettes at all, and you're talking about him selling them singly. And this man is then uh, choked to death. And the point there is is that the particular chokehold around the neck was forbidden by the, I think it's the New York Police Department, forbidden their officers to do um, oh, many years ago. So, however you look at that, uh, there was an offence by an officer against his code, and therefore an awareness by his employers uh, that the behaviour could indeed uh, lead uh, to, to death. And I, I'm absolutely astounded that what you call a grand jury, which is not a court, um, actually then lets the, the man off. Well, obviously, on any way of looking at the situation, when somebody does something which, if you I did it, would most certainly be uh, unlawful, and in this case an officer does it against his own police department's rule in terms of his employment, the very least there should have been a charge of a manslaughter. Um, Though, and with manslaughter, as you know, the penalty can be um, one month imprisonment or, or, or 20 years. It just depends on, on the circumstances. But that the officer should get away with it is indeed shocking. Now, I believe that it's one every 28 hours is the death rate of black people being killed by the, the, the USA police. Uh, though they are saying that the number which is actually reported is much higher so shall we say it's one per day and i can't claim that in the uk we're much better than that but there is um and so all this is shocking enough and it represents um it's just it's not just racism steve it's about an economic oppression uh, when martin luther king was killed he was being really killed because he was the voice of a demand for a fairer economic share of the pie. So uh, it's racism and it's an economic oppression. But at any rate, looking at the figures of death, the one which really horrifies me is the 22 per day, which is the figure for American veterans. And I looked this up yesterday and I saw that there are great doubts on that figure. Apparently, it is an underreported figure because uh, people who are homeless very often are not then adequately described in the records as having been ex-veterans, for example. But I remember my youth, and I was always... don't remember 
anything to do with suicides from ex-soldiers. Um, they would be uh, quiet. Um, they would be in trouble. But in the Second World War, um, those who served very often had a terrible time. But they were ultimately doing something which they knew had to be done. And when you get 22 per day in the USA veterans, 22 per day creating suicide, that tells you uh, that those who have been um, to get a job, usually to get an income, uh, to maybe to have their education paid for, have joined the military services and then gone out and seen combat. It tells you that they don't believe that they were fighting for what is right. And that is the true tragedy of that astounding figure of 22 suicides uh, per day. What do you say on that, Steve? Oh, it's been a while, but I wrote on that topic, uh, indeed. Uh, you get you get suicides, U.S. servicemen suicides, uh, ones on active duty in war theaters like Afghanistan, and you've got you've got the vets who come home, and many of them after the after they're out of the service and home, uh, you see suicides there, and the numbers are really shocking, and you get practically nothing said about this in the major media. If I remember, I think a couple of years ago. I saw an article in the New York Times about this, but virtually nothing is said about this, the idea that so many Americans are killing themselves. The casualties of U.S. wars, the current ones going on, are greater in the suicides than they are in combat. A shocking statistic, an indictment of America's system, and, and, and the vets that come home also are so, are, so in, are so ingrained in a culture of violence that many of them commit violence at home, either against their own family members or against others. Maybe they commit violent crimes, and this is because of the training that they get. They're literally trained to hate the enemy, to kill them. It's just kill, 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 kill. The notion is drummed into their heads, and sometimes they take it out on their own bodies. Again, the whole business is shocking and ugly, Rodney. Yes, it, it, it is that, which is bad enough. But the, the point that I, I want to focus on there is uh, that is that when you go to war, when you kill, um, you have to know that what you're doing, it is right. I mean, there are psychopaths, but most people who are soldiers um, are reasonably decent people, and they think they're doing a job, and they've been told that they're fighting for liberty and this and that. When they go and actually do the thing and realize that what they are doing on behalf of what and that the innocent people are being killed, and those who are not so innocent, but those are holding a gun against them, that even though are probably people are fighting for their own land or something like this, this puts intolerable psychological uh, pressures. And questions as to the adequacy of um, veteran treatment in the USA, and there are big questions there, of course. But for me, the big one issue is it wasn't like this with people who came home from the Second World War. I don't think it was like this for people who came home from the Korean War. The one where it really did strike home and where the trouble was, and the Americans who served had all these question marks as to what they were doing and why, was, of course, was Vietnam. Now there were 50,000 people uh, killed there, but public pressure uh, and subsequent information has revealed, of course, that the American public really was becoming a great question mark as to why they were there, what they were doing. And in any case, 
uh, even though well, maybe they thought they were fighting something was bad, they, they were practice, had been supporting something that was even more bad or even worse uh, than that. Uh, now, Steve, um, can we move on? Because there's so much in this uh, Christmas program. Um, can we move on uh, to something that listeners to Progressive Radio knew very well? And um, they knew about the spying. They knew about 9-11. And if the alert ones will certainly have known about torture. But I will give one item of Christmas cheer that at least um, something has been revealed about organized uh, torture. But 5,500 pages have been redacted, that is to say, cut out. And even then, anybody doing an investigation would have been lied to, lied to, and lied to all over the place. But in all this business of, of the torture, and which you've been writing about, um, there's one, one which fascinates me, one little piece of information, and it is that Vice President Dick Cheney has said that his president, George Bush, knew about it. Uh, do you think this is a case of um, rats starting to try to jump the ship or at least <laughs> trying to preserve their position? Um, what do you say on this? I remember, Steve, is that um, in the Nuremberg trials, if Nuremberg trials, if Hitler had been there, he wouldn't have been able to get away by saying that he didn't know about it or that he was at the chain of command and couldn't know what was happening on lower down. Um, there is a thing called management responsibility, and at some point you do have to take responsibility. So what is Cheney up to saying that, oh, certainly George Bush knew? Is he trying to get out of it? Uh, or is it the reality is, as Obama has essentially said, there's going to be no substantial recriminations against those who ordered this torture. Well, Rodney, on the one hand, I think people like Cheney believe what they were doing was right, that they really benefited the country. They, they got bad guys uh, put out of circulation. They got information out of them that saved American lives. Of course, that's all rubbish. But in the Bush administration, there's, there's evidence there in black and white that people like me uh, was able to find and put in writing to be able to quote material from the Bush administration verbatim, including so-called torture memos. I remember writing about two in particular by John Yo, a legal advisor to the yes. Bush administration, right there in black and white. I mean, basically, basically uh, uh, contriving reasons uh, to justify the use of torture. And there it is. Anybody can look this stuff up. Dated back uh, oh, 2002, 2003, whenever I forget the dates of the memos, but they're there. And then Bush's military order number one. That was the first thing before the uh, Patriot Act. Even I think was within a few weeks of uh, of 9/11 and basically saying uh, you are authorized by presidential edict to go out and get any of these bad guys that you can and do anything that you want with them and that was in Bush's name which means it's in Cheney's name too so how do you deny stuff that's out there for anybody to find including me including a lot of other people and anybody could bring it up and ho certainly a good lawyer could bring it up if this stuff ever came to trial and hold it against them so i don't know what's on this guy's mind uh, Rodney, but it could it could be some of these things. Um, I um, was this morning reading a newspaper article in which the CIA uh, was criticising this uh, the, the the report as being a partisan attack. Well, 
as I said, about 99% of the truth won't even be in that report. And they're looking at their alleged claimed reasons of defence. You don't actually uh, get them referring which to the key point, which is that there seems to be little or no evidence uh, that any of this torture produced anything which stopped anything at all, if you get what I mean. Oh, absolutely, um, that's true. Absolutely There has true. been a claim that there was, and then, Steve, here it comes. It seems that um, one incident was stopped, except it wasn't stopped by the CIA. It was stopped by the UK, MI6. And, of course, there now comes the question as to what MI6 was up to. Well, that report issued in America um, upholds the convention that um, the secret services who cooperate with each other should not, um, Renaire should not um, uh, grasp, as it were, on their colleague compatriot services in the other countries. And the result of this is that um, there's nothing being said really in that report about MI6. But we know in the UK that MI6 played its game in a dirty, dirty way as well, just as the USA had... Um, um, torture prisons uh, on its own soil, uh, but also in other countries. So in the UK, we were making use of the prisons in uh, Poland and in Egypt, uh, for example. So, um, and people who've been tortured in these prisons and who have survived have afterwards explained that the questions were sometimes put to them by people who were obviously MI6. So in all of this game, if there has been one incident uh, which was stopped as a result of torture, um, it was probably the result of the British at least condoning or inviting or asking others to do their dirty work uh, for them. Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Poland, uh, for a start, all come to mind as places where we know that the UK was complicit in the rendition of people there. So the blame goes much wider uh, than the USA. Um, the evidence for uh, uh, stopping uh, something, some sort of um, atrocity or outrage, is, is relatively very small indeed. And if there's any claim, it goes to, to the advantage, if you can call it that, of MI6, which was um, got its torture done usually uh, by somebody else in a hypocritical way. The whole thing is disgusting, Steve. And the lying. You, we know no one was doing any torture. No, they weren't. No one was spying on anybody. No, they weren't. And 9-11 was always done by uh, 20 um, by 20 Saudis. Um, all of it is lies. And Steve, is there any reason at all now why I should believe anything coming from my government or from your government? When they lie about torture, when they lie um, about 9-11, when they lie about what we're spying, there is no reason to believe one single word that they say about everything. And I think that message is now getting out, Steve. So this revelation, which you and I and listeners all knew about, but is now sort of going to permeate through the, the minds of the bulk of the population, uh, this revelation, I think, is going to have the consequence, perhaps not of clearing the air, but in fact of just because it comes on top of so much other lying. 
that it then becomes a something which becomes won't clear the air, but will lead to a plague on all your houses and some sort of huge political reaction. Though it's hard to see exactly what that reaction would be in the United States. What do you say? I think it's going to come sooner or later, Rodney. I don't see it yet, but I really believe it will come. It came in the 60s and 70s, and I think it'll come again even bigger than it was back then. But but I don't see it happening yet. Uh, on the one hand, I'm reminded of uh, the famous muckraking journalist I.F. Stone, uh, gone for about yes. 25 years now, saying the same statement, uh, teaching journalist students, saying all governments lie and nothing they say should be believed. And I remember reading more recently in an article that Britain fell all over itself, marching in lockstep with lawless U.S. policy, whether it was on torture or naked aggression or anything else to do with the American imperial agenda. Both of these countries do march in lockstep, Rodney. The horrors, they're both guilty of exactly the same thing. Uh, something needs to be done, but I don't see anything happening yet. Yes. Okay, Steve. Now, um, there have been some um, fun and games uh, going on, some of it not well reported, um, uh, in regards to Syria, it looks as though there's been well, a sort of U-turn by the Syrian opposition in which they're recognizing that they have to join with the Assad government. And if they don't do that, those who don't are in fact tact-fear. In other words, a clarification. But the only ones who haven't really woken up to what's going on are, of course, the Americans and uh, the uh, British. Um, the tax theory in my mind at the moment, because um, uh, to about two weeks ago, uh, they claimed that they have built a dirty bomb. Now, I think that I was one of the first to deal with the issue of a dirty bomb uh, in the year 2002 uh, with a co-author. I published, uh, we published a book um, which actually started with a dirty uh, bomb. And a dirty bomb, as your viewers may well know, is uh, some sort of um, radioactive material which has basically got a grenade at the center of it. So it just spreads a small amount of radio material, which can be very serious or can be relatively minor and just a bit scare-making. Um, but in this case, the TAC theory are claiming that they, when they took over Mosul, that's in North Iraq. They took sufficient radioactive uranium from the Mosul University and that they are now bragging, uh, thinking about the destruction the bomb would cause if it went off in London. Well, indeed, it would. And um, quite a low amount of radioactivity in a capital city could do a uh, immense amount of danger. Um, and this was coming out on the Internet. Um, and so there is a very, very real uh, danger of these uh, groups. Um, in the book that we wrote, the, 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 the bomb itself caused people to rethink the issue as to what we were doing and whether our own Western policy was a major factor in the cause of the trouble. Um, but now we have to face that the tank theory have used chemical weapons. And by the way, I still think they are still doing their use. Some chlorine weapons were used in the last two or three weeks. And now they're claiming that, that maybe that they do have a radioactive uh, dirty bomb. It is very, very worrying. 
And I think it's time that the USA in particular, with Israel, remember that the tax fairy have not been attacking Israel, and Israeli is certainly helping their wounded and allowing the passage of arms in through Syria. Um, I think it's time that the USA and Israel and Saudi Arabia recognize that they are propagating something which may well get right back to us in the form of some form of a dirty bomb. It's very, very worrying, Steve, and I've been aware of it for a long, long term, uh, long time. And um, I'm just beginning to wonder uh, whether those in the uh, CIA and elsewhere who have actually armed and created and are maintaining uh, this attack very movement for the policy of keeping the American arms industry alive and for the Zionist policy of trying to smash up any independent uh, standing uh, in Middle East state, whether they really know what they're, they're up to. So this one annoys me um, and worries me because it was something I was well aware of um, 12 years ago, though perhaps others may have spotted the uh, potential for trouble in that area long before I did. What do you say on that? Well, on the one hand, I'm amazed, Rodney, that there hasn't been a dirty bomb incident up to now. I don't know how hard it is to create one. You know, to build a sophisticated nuclear weapon, well, that's one thing. But to get radioactive material and uh, have a bomb maker be able to uh, uh, create uh, some kind of a bomb with an explosive charge inside to uh, spread the radioactive material over a certain area, I mean, it could be a square mile or two. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff, and I'm amazed something like that hasn't happened on another issue, which is going on in Syria. Uh, I quoted uh, a former Palestinian legal advisor in an article, the article, article I mentioned about Haaretz uh, editors uh, uh, talking about the urgency of getting rid of Netanyahu, Diana Butu, former legal advisor to the PLO, or the Palestinian Authority, uh, talking about no moderates in the Israeli government, so you can talk about uh, Netanyahu being on the far right and others like him, but there are no moderates in the Israeli government, and I believe that for a long time. Maybe they were at some time in the past, but even moderate, oh, she made another comment, that so-called moderates, Israeli moderates, would be considered hardliners in other countries, and I absolutely believe that. So there are no moderates in Israel, and I believe the same thing is true in the groups fighting the Syrian government. There is no moderate opposition. The moderate anti-Assad people are the ones who are not fighting. There are anti-Assad elements in Syria, but they're in a very small minority, getting smaller all the time, and they are not violent. They are not part of the war going on against the government. The ones who are in the war, the ones that America has supported, America has created, along with Middle East countries, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, others, UK, France, these, these are extremists. Takfiri, as you mentioned, uh, Islamic State, Al-Nusra Front, Al-Qaeda, they're being armed, they're being trained. This is the opposition of the Syrian government. 
Where this is going, I don't know, but it, it's hard to imagine that the Syrians would want these people to come to power running their country, or they don't. And it showed up, Rodney, in the June presidential election where Syrians, in an election monitored independently, judged open, free, and fair, 89-plus percent voted for Assad. That shows the overwhelming support that he has, if not entirely for his own policies, much, much better, I think, than earlier, but certainly because the alternative is intolerable, and 90% of Syrians, at least, want no part of it. Yes, indeed. Now, um, this leads on very nicely to um, report on a, a one-hour um, program which I did with um, uh, three other people on um, Levant TV, because the question which we were asked to answer was why, in this case UK, why are UK young people going and joining ISIS in Syria or in Iraq? And everyone is worried about it, but they are failing to see the crux of the matter. Um, of course, on the one hand, it's a result of uh, the West attacking Islam. All the chickens are coming home to roost, and um, people recognizing that the, um, the vibes were, let's go and uh, attack Islam. Young people pick these uh, vibes up and realize what is happening, and they're not deceived by that. That's number one. Uh, number two is the, um, the desire of young people to go and serve a cause which gives them some idea of maybe fighting for what they think is right. Um, and the conclusion we came to at the moment is that it is not just a question of them being misled, because you can't explain the scale of the thing by which they are going to fight for ISIS. People from the UK are most certainly doing it. Um, it is a complete failure to, um, to appeal to their hearts uh, to aspire and to realize that the life that's being offered for them is something worthwhile. In the UK, we know that, there's, that people from Islamic backgrounds have not been getting the jobs, it, remembering that a lot of other people are not getting the jobs either because there's a great weakness there in the UK. But this issue as to why can this throat-slitting, head-chopping uh, phenomena uh, uh, inspire um, it's a profound failure. And we actually, Peter Challon and I, addressed this originally in that book, which I mentioned earlier on in 2002. Um, I want to tell a little story about that because it tells you all this ties in. It's everything is going wrong. There's a great economic failure. There's a great political failure. Unless we do it, the thing is getting worse. What happened in 2002, we were publishing that book. Bernard Leiter, the man who uh, designed the euro, I think. Uh, he was at the conference, and he said, well, you've got it right. He said, um, um, but there's a bit of a problem. You're, you're, there's also going to be a great collapse, and that when there is the collapse, there will only be um, a few weeks before there's fascism. And then very recently, he repeated that again uh, to us. And the problem is this, is that what we have called free market has no moral appeal. It doesn't really appeal to young people as there's something worth fighting for. The free market says, uh, or claims to say, that everything is efficient and just. There's nothing to fight for. Nothing can be improved. 
And that leads to a gap in the hearts of young people who want to fight for something. And when something comes along and says, well, now, um, we're going to fight for this, whether it looks good or bad, but at least it's got something to go for. But they, there's no inspiration in, young, in politics for young people. And whereas what you need to have is something where you say, we are going to, something is wrong, we're going to go forward and we're going to change it, and we know how to change it and in what way. And I do think that it is the, it is the lack of any inspiration in modern society. Uh, which uh, leads to young people feeling they have to go off and fight for something. Another aspect, of course, is that the young men uh, don't have a rite de passage. There's a French phrase meaning um, one of these ceremonies in life when human beings go through various stages, you know, maybe communion in the uh, first communion in, in a church or um, a kind of key of the door when you're 18 or 21, some aware or, 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 or marriage. These are things you go through which impress upon the psychology of a stage you're going through and of your development to the future. And young men uh, do not have uh, very often an experience of um, well, it's something which sort of goes into their character. They very often don't play sport. And they are um, controlled by what they see on their video and the television. And I do believe it the case that the, there is a problem there is that the young men go off basically uh, to do what is instinctive in a lot of the young men is to go off and have a fight. Um, this is why a lot of people join the American um, military forces. But however you look at it, there is a great moral failure which is, means that the young people have got nothing to believe in what they stand for is worthwhile. There's an economic failure on a large scale and on their individual scale. And there is this political failure. The young people are picking up an attack. And if they come from Islamic backgrounds, so that's what it's about. They think it's an attack on Islam. You put that all together... And it's no good standing up and preaching in the schools or preaching in the mosques or having spies in the mosques. All the mosques in the UK are full of spies now, all reporting back. And it just doesn't seem to work because they cannot ultimately solve that problem. It's that young people feel they feel um, alienated. They feel they have nothing uh, to, to um, inspire them. And at the same time, they feel that their identity is being attacked. And those seem to be the reasons, Steve, why those young people, they, and it's not just the UK, of course, it's Germany, it's even Australia, um, are going out there and uh, putting their lives on the line and regretting it afterwards, very often realizing they want to come home. But the fact of the matter is, there is a massive psychological appeal to these young people and they are responding to it what do you say well i'm a little down on people in america rodney i see more indifference than anything else uh people seem to be concerned more with other things uh, they may be upset about a lot of things but they're certainly not showing it as far as what I can see, their actions, I think Europeans are a little bit more outspoken. But, but 
What's important is not so much protest. We see protests in Europe. We saw recent ones in Greece taking place uh, in past months. We've seen them in the U.K. and other countries. Uh, a lot of protests in Italy of late uh, for the economic situation and the same thing going on in Greece. But protests don't seem to be accomplishing anything. We need to see some kind of sustained action against government policies that are literally wrecking people's lives. I don't see Americans getting upset about this. They may be upset, but they're not doing anything about it. So my feeling about Americans is that they're sitting on their hands. Uh, they're concerned about other things in their lives. They may be worried about the state of things that certainly are not doing them any good, but they're not doing anything about it the way they did back in the 60s and 70s, Rodney. And if they don't do something, the things can only get worse. Well, I think what's really happening is we're heading toward an explosion sooner or later. But my feeling is I would like to see it come and give these guys a comeuppance and show them that a lot of people simply won't take this anymore and they really will do something to change things. I think that's the only way we can get responsible change in the country. And as long as the government knows they can get away with anything they want, with nothing more than an occasional protest or maybe an eruption like Occupy Wall Street that has been put down for the most part, they can keep doing anything they want. But if we can get the kind of sustained activism we saw in the 60s and 70s, then their world can be turned on its head, and that's what we need. I hope there's something that can happen that can arouse people to want to do this. I think the missing ingredient is the kind of leadership that was existing back in the 60s and 70s is absent now, Rodney. And without this, maybe it's hard mobilizing people to do what in their heart of hearts believe that they really should do, but they're not doing it. They're not led. Well, yes. Um, uh, you talk about mobilization. Um, interestingly, there are big demonstrations in this country in support of the, uh, the killing or uh, of protesting against uh, the killing of um, black citizens in the U USA. And that, to me, is a sign of a recognizing of things going across the water and a more global protest is, is in fact, starting. Um, you mentioned Greece just now. Certainly in Greece, they are on the verge of massive political uh, change. And people may say that it is only a small country. But, Steve, it is coming. It is coming in Spain. Um, it is coming in Italy. It is coming in Greece. Um, in the UK, uh, just you wait and see. I haven't the slightest doubt now that we're going to have a coalition government uh, come next May, which will be our general election. Um, and it is, a lot of it is negative at this moment. Um, but the one factor which will cause this protest to go along right the way across the scene will, of course, be that next downward lurch in the economic. That is what is needed uh, to um, precipitate um, that great, uh, that great push, because all the time the young people are taught not only that the existing system will get out of it and will recover, they're also controlled by debt and debt, Steve, and the young people's debt in the UK and elsewhere is absolutely astonishing, and uh, they're controlled by it. They daren't move, and that combination of cling on, the system is perfect, um, and at the same time you're in debt and you can't really do anything about it. Uh, that, I think, is, is drawing the uh, teeth of um, young uh, uh, people. Um, 
Steve, all this is depressing. Is there anything that we can look forward to and try and get a bit of Christmas spirit uh, for the future? I was reading somebody's uh, prognostications for the future, and one of them, I think it's Saxo Bank, is actually prophesying that they think there's going to be a really big explosion of an Icelandic volcano. I thought, well, thank you very much, you know. You know, the Christmas spirit, you had to do a bit of foretelling, and somebody comes up with an explosion of an Icelandic uh, volcano. That volcano, of course, it last time, that particular one exploded, was just before the French Revolution, and it did so much damage to the the weather and the the corn harvest in Europe that it was, without any doubt, a factor in the uh, French Revolution. Now, do you see anything of real cheer for next year, because at the moment, I don't, except possibly one thing. Um, I do believe is that the um, that invention is now um, rapidly going on, that solar electricity will soon be coming into its own, um, that very, uh, there's recently been announced a sort of thin solar film, which they can just put on the roof of your garage or of a tent or anything and it's relatively cheap relatively strong and highly efficient i see from for me i see um i see new energy development as being the one thing of hope uh for uh, the new year um has anything crossed your mind of of possibly being um in, in the optimistic area or are we still in doom and gloom Remember well, I, get this, a, I get asked this, this so, right often, so often, Rodney, I'm asked this uh, in the context of, of somebody saying to me by email, why don't you write about something positive? And my answer is always the same. When I see it, I'll write about it. I don't see anything ahead that gives me encouragement. I've seen the Bush administration for eight years uh, since I began writing and the Obama administration for six years. And we'll see things go from bad to worse to worse. And I think between now and the end of the Obama administration, well, two years left in the Obama administration, uh, we'll see things get continually worse. I'd love to be optimistic, Rodney, but I find nothing to be optimistic about. I must say, I, I, I don't think you ever get people in the UK saying, why don't you write about anything positive? And I, if I may say so, there's something which I once noticed seems to me about America is that when they say write about something positive, they normally mean uh, some sort of, um, what word, almost sentimental story of an individual's achievement or an individual overcoming uh, something um, rather, and so you're, you're going to get distracted from the big issue onto something which is uh, gratifying and pleasing, and telling you something about human beings. But that sort of thing doesn't really go towards the big issues. It's about one issue and one solution and one particular anecdote rather than the big issues. I don't know whether that's me just making this up, but it seems to be a slightly American. Uh, characteristics uh, which tends to mislead and take people away from the big issues because you and I are talking about the things which affect millions of people's lives and you cannot um, counteract that by coming up with a heartwarming uh, warming the cockles of the heart uh, anecdote uh, which people tend to mean when they talk about why don't you write uh, about something
something uh, positive. So, Steve, um, I can't really find too much uh, for, for the next year except for, for, for good energy. Um, there may well be improvements in um, recognition of the effects of, um, of climate change. And there, I think that there the misleading thing has been that we're into global warming. I'm hoping that we're going to actually wake up to the amount of plastics in the ocean and the killing of the fish. I think in those areas there can be some sort of uh, or, or, or rising or, or awakening. Um, the global warming lot who's saying that the world is, is rising, uh, the temperatures are rising, I think they've lost the argument. Um, I don't think... Uh, I think the weather's going to... It is stabilising, and with change... There may be well be that magnetic pole may well be shifting. Um, so on the future there, I don't see all that much, um, which will be um, t too opt optimistic. But some recognition of the damage that we are doing to the environment, I'm looking forward to that. So overall, Steve, it's um, not not a, um, a very good. Um, I, this is why I called what I wanted to say today a Christmas program, not a Christmas special. I couldn't really say to listeners there are a lot of uh, goodies in the uh, pipeline. Um, okay, so um, if you are, uh, with your permission, I will say um, to your to listeners that I do wish them very, very well. I hope that uh, we're going to have something uh, rather more um, um, cheerful for the new year, though there's possibly war in Ukraine. Um, Everyone's forgetting the situation between those islands in the South China Sea where that could blow up at any one time. Israel is as out of control as ever. And um, Ebola seems to have gone down, but the figures are quite high. Um, there's you know, it's thousands of deaths there, though one wonders why it has suddenly gone out of the news. Is it that they think they've got it uncontrolled? Is it that the thing in the first place was created so that they already had the, the pharmaceutical companies already had the cure ready? Um, I don't know what's going on that one. But certainly, Steve, that's one which we must keep an eye on because um, if the Ebola is an, a, a pandemic, as it looked like it was, why is it suddenly uh, dropped out of the news? So many um, issues, so many issues. We're out of time, Rodney. So many issues and so much to address. I guarantee that if there's anything positive going on in the new year, I'd be delighted to write about it and point it out. Uh, we both hope for the best, Rodney, and certainly people around the world deserve it. It's been nightmarish, literally, for billions of people, including in developed countries in America, in Britain, marching in lockstep with the worst U.S. policies in Israel and occupied Palestine. But we always hope for the best, Rodney. I never lose hope. We are out of time. I look forward to another good discussion next month, and we will stay on these issues, Rodney. I always appreciate your insight on so many of them. It's a wonderful program whenever you come on. Okay, so and we'll, with Christmas greetings to, to all listeners, and um, let's just hope that we can have some better news in the new year. Indeed so. Thank you so much, Rodney. Okay, Steve. Bye-bye.